So tonight we're going to start a new uh, series. We're going to have a discussion for the next few weeks about prayer. And we're going to call this Beyond. We're going to go beyond maybe what we would normally do. And so tonight we're going to start by just having a very practical conversation about some things to set the tone for where we're going to go in the weeks to come as we start to think about prayer and look at it from maybe a different perspective than we normally would look at it. So let me open with a word of prayer and then we're going to want to ask you a few questions, okay? Also remember there's handouts, pens, and cards for you to put prayer requests on, although, you know, so don't be afraid to write your prayer requests or you're like, let me wait till after this message and at the end I'll write it because I might write it wrong. <laughs> no. Alright, let's pray. God, we're grateful for you. Thank you for being our Father and thank you for your sovereignty and your goodness and how it sustains us and propels us to do your will and to seek your face. And Lord, Thank you that you represent the solution to all the problems that come into our life, especially the problems that overwhelm us in this world and in this culture. And Lord, thank you that it's you, it's your word, it's the truth, it's the gospel that is the mender of all that's broken. And Lord, so tonight as we gather in this place and we think and talk about these things with regards to our relationship with you through prayer. We pray that, Lord, you'd you'd be here with us, that your spirit would empower our time together, that you give us ears to hear, and that our hearts would receive that which you'd have us to know about you, Lord, that we'd be drawn closer to you tonight through this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so let's start with this question. Who taught you to pray? How did you learn how to pray? How come you pray the way that you pray? When you pray, everybody prays differently and uniquely. So if you spend time with people, you get used to the way they pray, right? So I'm used to the way certain people pray because I've heard them pray consistently. I pray with them on a regular basis, and so there's certain things about the way they pray that's unique. Some of you I've never heard pray, so I wouldn't know. But it's not just you and your own world, but you and whoever's around you You pray a certain way. They pray a certain way. Well, who taught you to to pray that way? Have you ever thought about this? Has anyone provided a positive, life-changing model of prayer for you? See, maybe some of you thought to yourself, well, no one really taught me to pray. Well, that's not true. You just, it wasn't anybody intentional or specific. Someone taught you. Someone taught you. 
So I would answer that question personally. I would say, who taught me to pray? That would be Lisa's dad taught me to pray. And so early on, as a brand new believer, one of the real formational things in my life was I, you know, he was a, at that time in his life was an evangelist and he traveled, was traveling around preaching. And so I started going with him out of town and on, you know, just follow him around. And with really, it was just from this desire within me to have a father figure in my life. No, had no earthly idea that God was using that to form me and to shape me and to mold me. And I had no idea. It wasn't like I was following around thinking, oh, hey, one day I can do what he does because that was the furthest thing from my mind. But we'd be staying either, you know, we'd be in his motor home or we would sometimes end up in a hotel or sometimes the church would have some kind of facility or something they'd put us up in. But anyway, regardless of what the scenario was, when we would wake up in the morning, he would get up in the morning and then he would kneel down beside the bed and he would pray out loud. And so I would hear him do that. I mean, I was a brand new believer. And remember, I didn't grow up in church, so I never heard anybody pray growing up. I never had any interaction with that at all. And so... You know, I mean, really, honestly, at that point in my life, I'd never heard Lisa pray, ever. So, that was sort of super formational for me. And, of course, I had no idea at the time, but this is sort of the role he was playing. Now, what about this? Do you feel that you even know how to pray effectively? See, one thing that we know about prayer and about Christians is that this conversation is a great source of discouragement in Christians' lives. And that I don't expect you to be uh, honest outwardly about this, but I know the truth. The truth is, is that the majority of people in this room do not feel adequate or sufficient in prayer. Most of you. That's the truth. It's always the truth. It's a... In our culture, guaranteed. And... uh, But, you know... I guess if you don't feel like you're effective, how do you judge that? Why? I just want you to think about this. Like... When you think about, my guess is, is that, you know, if before the, you know, before you all came in here tonight, I had infused some truth serum into the HVAC system in this room, so it's been <laughs> pumping into this room, so you can't lie. Wouldn't that be exciting? <laughs> Maybe not so much for you, but it would be very exciting for me. But if that were the case. My guess is this is this would be the majority of, of answers. This, you would say that you don't feel effective. Uh, a lot of you would say you don't feel effective because you don't feel like you pray enough. And then the second thing that would come out would be, besides that you don't pray enough, would be that 
you don't feel effective because you don't see God specifically answering your prayers. So you feel, right, because if you're praying about something that's not happening, you're not, then you don't feel effective about it. And then my question would be, is that the accurate way to gauge effective prayer? What's the purpose behind your praying? See, you... See, like, if I said, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you pray? It's a pointless question because everyone has a different understanding of the scale, right? We don't all have the same scale. So your numbers, it's just your number and your perception of your... But this is what I know. I know that you... There are certain things that drive you to prayer. Like there are tendencies to your prayer. You tend to pray. There's things that happen that cause you to to pray. And then there are other things that happen that don't necessarily do that. And that if you were to record yourself praying like... I'm being recorded right now. If you recorded your prayers for a month, you would be astonished at how crystal clear the answer to this would be. That over the course of the month, your prayers have a very significant uh, you know, thread woven through them. There's a, there'd be a clear purpose. But the shocking thing is that most of the time, if I have a conversation with people, they, they can't ever answer this question. But they there is a purpose. See, you do not pray like a completely different prayer every time you pray. That's not how that works. There's a very consistent purpose. And so, what is it? You should think about that. Is it working for you? And I think this goes back to do you pray, do you feel like it's effective? Is it working for you? Do you you know? And then how do you answer that question? How do you judge that? How does that work? And then maybe most importantly would be well, is it a biblical approach or? Have you ever even thought about this? Have you ever even asked yourself the question? Like, hmm. Is the, is the way I pray the way the Bible would teach me to pray? And how does the Bible teach us to pray? And what does the Bible have to say about it? See, all of us in this room have something in common with regards to prayer. We all learn to pray the same way. You learn to pray the same way I learn to pray. 
Because it's the only way you can learn. You learn to pray by listening to other people around you pray. That's the only way you could learn. Which as I started thinking about this, I was telling Pastor Matt earlier this week when we were talking about this series, I said, I got a little bit freaked out. Because it made me stop and realize how influential the way that I pray out loud for you is. I've never really thought about that before. That I, There's a lot of people in this church that I'm teaching how to pray because I'm the only one they ever hear pray out loud, a lot of people. Think about that. And it really kind of jarred me a little bit to think about that. And then... You can tell I've been thinking about this for several weeks because a few Wednesdays ago I was in the midst of Job I was talking about my kids and how they pray. Remember that conversation some of you? And it's because I've been thinking about this and how they learn to pray by listening to me pray and that's you know caused me to you know be you know, we want to be very, very careful about the way we pray in front of our kids because that's how they're going to pray. That's their prayer language is learned from whoever they hear pray. And if they only hear one parent pray, then it's going to be very tilted in that direction which I don't think is healthy because your children's personality is a combination of these two sets of DNA. So wherever the, the wherever you know it's possible and healthy, right? You would want to have because your kids are different and they relate differently and so some kids, some of your kids are going to relate more to the way mom prays and some kids are going to relate more to the way dad prays. But either way, it's going to give them a more well-rounded... But it's super, super important. Think about that. So this is why it's, you know... I mean, I've said this over and over over the years. Like, I just think it's so unhealthy to do this now I lay me down to sleep nonsense. That's just a bad idea. That's a really, really bad idea. It's a bad idea. And I would caution you to this, you know, sort of vain repetition of, you know, thank you God for this food, amen, let's eat it. That's just a bad idea. You know, you gotta you gotta really be thoughtful about that. It's sort of the it's sort of like, you know. Uh, you just don't you got to think about what, what you're modeling there so what is what is what is prayer I mean what is it like at its essence 
When you're praying, what are you doing? Like maybe you think, well, I'm, I'm talking to God, but how do you know you're talking to God? What's happening? How do you know something's happening? How many times have you prayed because you, your, your motivation for praying was predicated on the fact that you knew you should be? So, and then think about what happens in a relationship when someone in a relationship is motivated to do what they do because they know they should. What happens if I bring my wife flowers because I should? That's not a good reason. What Do I kiss my wife goodbye because I should? Does any wife want to be kissed goodbye because you should? You see? No. So does God want to hear from you because you should? But what happens is we we, we do that. We, we start to relate to God in a way that we wouldn't want anybody to relate to us. Like, have you thought about, um, you know, has anybody in here, you know, have you like done anything creative with your kids or did somebody do that with you growing up so that you would say, you know, I learned how to pray because my mom or my dad or my grandfather or my grandmother or somebody you know, I remember hearing them pray and they prayed in a certain way that was it wasn't mechanical or it moved me, it felt real, it was when I heard them pray. Don't you feel like when you hear somebody pray, you can maybe more than at any other time you, you sort of have a sense of whether or not that person really knows God. Like if I hear somebody pray, I feel like that's that's one of the strongest ways that I sense that somebody knows God by just listening to them pray, the way they pray. It, and at its essence, it's depending on God. And dependence is a posture. It's a it's a it's a position. It it's understanding that the essence of prayer is dependence will help you sort of... Well, it will help you realize what it's not. So prayerlessness would be the opposite of that. Independence 
from God would be prayerlessness. So if you if you read the research that groups like the Barna group do, and you know, like when we talked about what resilient discipleship is, um, you know, months back before the coronavirus was a thing, and on Sunday mornings as we went through that sermon series, you know, you learn there's just a lot of very interesting things that when people are um, when information's gathered that's anonymous so people are honest because they're nobody knows who they are and what they're you know their church isn't gathering the information but a group like Barna's calling people that they you know may get a list of names so Barna may call me and say can you give me uh a list of 50 families that attend church on a regular basis and their phone numbers, and then they would then use that information and call those families. But, you know, I don't know what you answer, and they don't know you, and so there's no reason to... Sometimes they mail it, and you can fill it out. They'll say, hey, will you do this? And you say yes, and they mail it to you. You fill it out, and you mail it back, or sometimes they do it over the phone. And it's really astonishing some of the things that we... Learn, like, for example, that the majority, over 50% of born-again Christians, we're not talking about people who say they believe in God, but people who would identify themselves as born-again, admit that they're bi-weekly attendants. So you can see that these are people that are would be considered devoted. Generally, the only time they worship God is at church. Outside of those times at church, they don't worship God. Like that their life is segmented and boxed off. And so what they have their church life and their church persona and their church, you know, person, and then they have their and it gets more complicated. Some people have their church person, and then they have their work person, and then they have their home person, and then some people have their, you know, weekend person. I mean, it can get really complicated. Some people are highly schizophrenic. <laughs> or fifty <clears throat> percent of believers say they don't feel that they've entered the presence of God or experienced a genuine connection with Him in the past year. Year. And that could be a, uh, you know, the, the, the answer to that or the reason for that could be highly complex. Right? I mean, that's not just a statement about the people that responded to that. That's a statement about the churches that they go to. You know? That that tells you a lot about the state of the church and, you know, what's going on. And um, thousands of churches are closing every single month in the United States. I mean, evangelical churches, thousands every single month. In the state of Mississippi, um, 80% 
of evangelical churches are in decline. There are tons and tons of uh, churches that didn't and won't reopen post-COVID. They won't survive that. Um, One of the things that uh, sort of the eye-opening moments that I had, you know, during the whole um, my little stint as a televangelist was uh, I was in the bank one day and I ran into my banker and I was and he came up to me and he said, hey, uh, you know, I was just standing there in the lobby and so he came up, he thought I was there to see him. I'm like, no, just, you know, here to take care of some business. And he said, you know, he's like, hey, are you, you know, you, you're here to see me? I'm like, no. And he goes, man, he said, I've been, he starts telling me about how all he's been doing is um, writing, he said, just about every uh, significant church in this whole area has gotten loans to payroll. I was like, what? I mean, not little churches, big churches. They're borrowing money so that they can pay their staff during the pandemic. He thought you were there to see him about that. Yeah, he thought I was there to get a loan. So we could survive. I'm like, no. So I think it all it's got a lot to do with that. Then I think that there's I mean, I think that there's people that go to this church that fall into this category. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, so so some of it's chalked up to the state of the church, but some of it's chalked up to the state of individuals. And if if we I mean what Wonder why? What would be some reasons why people don't pray? I mean, I, there's, it's not a scientific trick question. I mean, what, what do you think some reasons are that people don't pray? Get they get busy. That's a good reason. I think that'd be in the top ten for sure. What else? What? They think it's not effective, right? They think, well, if God's not going to listen to me. I guarantee you that's definitely in the top ten. What else? Not a priority. They feel self-sufficient. Yes, indeed. Anything else we left off? Yep. Like Brett said, I, I guarantee you. Yes. You've always told us to find a place. To not be distracted. Right. You know, I think that, you know, we're, it's human nature is we're creatures of habit. We just, you are. And you know, if you ever just think about it, you'll realize how much creature of habit you are. So I think that you should, you know, it, I think it's important to do that. So I always tell people, like, find a place to pray. And, and it's good to, where the place that you pray is the place that you pray. Like, don't do everything in that place. So, and then the illustration I always use is like, 
the worst place for me to pray is at my desk. That's the worst place for me to pray because that's where I do everything else. That's the most, that's where I'm going to be the, the face the most distractions. The most, so what I do, I want to pray somewhere, which doesn't it seem strange to you? Haven't you ever like, you know, you're reading the Bible and Jesus says, when you pray, go in your closet and shut the door and you're like, what? That's just weird. Why did He say that? That's why He said that. Go Have a place that you pray where you go to do that and as much as possible, you want to have a place and a time. That's not always possible, but those things are will, will make you highly effective. A place and a time. But I think a place... And when again, when you go to this place... Don't send me an email because I won't read it and it won't matter about this, but if you take your cell phone into your prayer closet, I'm not God. If I was, I would never listen to what you say. It's so annoying. But that's between you and Him. I'm not Him. But it annoys me to the highest degree when people fuss about that. Like, if ever there's something that illustrates duplicity, it is that right there. That's got to be the most duplicitous thing you can do. I'm going to seek your face, but I've got this here in case. But anyway, point is, place, time, place, time, place, time, right? So when we think about why people don't pray, think about this. I would say that if we took all the answers that we got and we, we had to boil it down, what could we boil it down to? Pride or guilt or shame? Those two categories. We don't pray because we're prideful. We're self-sufficient. This isn't on your hand. Now this is all extra. You're self-sufficient. You're... You're self-dependent. You're too busy. You're too distracted. You're too. That's all pride. Or the other category would be shame and guilt. God's not going to hear me because I'm too sinful, or because why would He listen to me, or whatever. Okay, those would be the two categories: pride and guilt and shame. And then. Uh, Think about uh, things like I was thinking about Isaiah 57. There's a verse in Isaiah 57. Let me read it to you. Isaiah 57, 15. You can write that down. For thus says the high and lofty one. Now listen to what God says. He inhabits the eternity whose name is holy. Then He speaks in quotations from the mouth of God. I dwell in the high and holy place with Him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So you see the problem with that pride creates in prayer? Then not only it, it, it stops us from praying, 
But when even when it doesn't stop us, it completely short circuits the whole thing, and which then leads to it being more effective at stopping because human nature is we quit doing something we don't feel good at or efficient at. That's just human nature. So if your pride is, is disconnecting your prayer, that can only lead to prayerlessness. And then when you read what God says, He dwells in the high and holy place. So here's God in a high and holy place. And who's there with Him? The contrite and the humble. See how pride is divisive? And then back in James 4, uh, the text two weeks ago that Matt dealt with, uh, the Scripture says, Humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. So there's clearly this issue. But then, what about in Matthew chapter 26 where it's the night, it's, the, it's just before Jesus is arrested. He goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes his three closest earthly friends, Peter, James, and John. He leaves the other disciples, takes them deeper in with him, and then he asks them in Matthew chapter 26, he says, Stay here and pray. And then he goes by himself in with the Father, right? He comes out and what does he find? They're sleeping. And he says to them, you couldn't even pray. Do you remember the duration of time? One hour. You couldn't even pray one hour. So what happened there? Well, what happened with Peter, James, and John? What happened to three guys who had been with Jesus for three years, who had seen Him do all these things, who had marveled at His power and His authority over nature and disease and you know nothing was impossible for Him and all the ways that He had ministered to them and things that He had taught them and all of that. Don't you know when He took them in just the three of them separated them from everyone else so they felt a sense of importance and specialness with him and right there was a heightened sense of so it was more don't you think in that moment there was there was a higher degree of them being successful at whatever he would have asked because he specifically asked them he didn't say to everybody hey raise your hand if you want to do this but he chose us three took us in, and then asked us to do this. So if there's ever a moment that, that we would feel compelled to succeed in something, it would have been that moment. And what was it that they succumbed to? Sleep. So they, they lacked the discipline and the willingness to push aside what they naturally wanted. Because when you're sleepy, you want to go to sleep. So, let me explain to you this way. I'm driving down the road. We're going on vacation. My kids are small. I have a brain 
We're going to be in the car for 10 hours. So what am I going to do? I'm going to get up at 4 a.m. and I'm going to make as much headway as I can before they ever open those little eyes and mouths. Right? So I'm burning some highway up. You know, Lisa, like, sweetheart, if it's not a medical emergency, we're not stopping this vehicle. Because when I stop, they're going to wake up. So we're going to go as far as we can possibly go before they wake up. So we're going. So, of course, this is 100% guarantee anytime we're traveling anywhere. Lisa is within two seconds in La La Land. She don't even know. So her and the kids are all, I, I'm completely on my own. There ain't no teamwork in that deal at all. She's snoozing away. She's got her pillow. She, she doesn't even, she's, she, I mean, it would be like Peter, James, and John bringing their pillow in there with Jesus. That's, G, that's Lisa's idea of I'm going to help you drive. So I'm driving, everybody's in la-la land, and I get sleepy. What thought comes to my mind? I'm sleepy. Or maybe just pretend I do that. What happens? Come on, you know, what do you do? What do I do? What is in my mind? It's the value of the cargo. It's, a, it's not the same scenario. Like if I'm by myself, I don't want to die. But it's heightened. When my family's in the vehicle, like it's a, another level of this ain't happening. Like it's just not happening, right? You know that feeling where you're like, no, this isn't happening. Now if you're by yourself, you're rolling the windows down, you turn the radio up, you're like, what? Acting. But you can't do that because you'll wake them up. So you really got to... Uh, right? So imagine that Peter, James, and John, the motivation of Jesus pulling them aside and saying, hey, pray for me. And they fall asleep. See, the thing is, is like here's, here's the thought that goes through my mind. If I fell asleep and went off the road and one of my children died or got injured, what would I do? Right? It's what, well, they're sitting there and they're thinking, don't you think they're thinking to themselves, if I fall asleep and Jesus sees me, like, don't, don't you think you'd be sitting there like this? Like if you were ever not going to go to sleep, wouldn't it be that moment? I'm, being, I'm just being serious. Man, like there's just... Man, I'm not going to sleep. No matter what happens. I mean, I would have said, you know, John, you're a son of thunder. Punch me in the face. So I don't go to sleep. Anything, but don't let me go to sleep. Because, man, if Jesus comes back and I'm sleeping, like, this is going to be bad. But they couldn't deny themselves.
Is that a pride issue? Is that a guilt issue? Is that a shame issue? Is that a... I mean, they didn't want to do that, but they did it. Why did they do that? I think if you try to put yourself in that situation, you feel that like you... you they failed. That was a fail moment. And when you fail, when you shouldn't fail, when you really shouldn't fail, but you failed anyway, when I fail, when I really shouldn't fail, but I fail anyway, like there's other things going on. Because if there wasn't other things going on, I wouldn't have failed. Somewhere in that scenario, there had to be this, there was a problem inside of those three disciples. At least, and it may not be the same problem because you could tell I probably thought way too much about this. Someone had to fall asleep first. They didn't all fall asleep at the same time. That didn't happen. Someone fell asleep first. Who fell asleep first? Wouldn't you like to know that? I would. And who fell asleep first? Why did he fall asleep first? He probably was the one who had the biggest problem. Then the other ones were like, well, if he's sleeping, like in my mind, my scenario in my mind is Peter fell asleep first. Because I just feel like that's the way that went down. And I feel like because of the relationship between the three of them, in my mind, I imagine Peter falls asleep first because he was the one who had the biggest problems going on. But the, the other thing is, is that he was also the most influential of the three of them. And so it would have been very easy for the other two to go, well, if he fell asleep, I'm going to sleep. Whereas Peter wouldn't have necessarily went, well, if they're going to sleep, I'm going to sleep. Peter seemed to lead. Peter was the one that was like, well, let's go back fishing. Let's, you know, Peter was the one. He led. So he probably went to sleep first. So then the other two were like, well, if he's going to sleep, I'm going to sleep. That's not healthy. Well, how is that healthy? That's bad. How do we do that in our own life? How does prayer or shame or guilt, those two things, insecurity, unworthiness, all that, how, does, how do those two things play back and forth and jack up our prayer life? So how can we see a radical change in our spiritual landscape without a radical return to prayer in the world by the, by the, and the Word by the body of Christ? Like, how, how come we, we, when, you, when you watch the news and you just get so bewildered by all the things that are going on and so frustrated by all the mess that everything is and you know, then everybody's giving their two cents about how to fix it and how this and how that. And I mean, but isn't it, isn't it obvious that it's, it's going to take something otherworldly to fix it? See, it's not going to be human resources or programs. Those things are going to distract us from the ministry of prayer and the Word. And the best we could hope for out of those would be ineffectiveness. But oftentimes they, they end up being destructive. 
See, the solution, the gospel is the solution. It's a gospel problem. That's the problem. On every level, on every side of the issue, it's all a gospel problem. And one side thinks the would even even if they were, you know, professing believers, one side thinks the other side is a gospel problem, and the other side thinks the other side is a gospel problem. But everyone has a gospel problem. That's the problem. The whole problem is a gospel problem. That is the whole problem. And if change is going to come through the supernatural power of prayer and the word. And the people, so that tells you that, the, that change can only come through a certain group of people, right? And let me tell you who those people are. Not the people in Washington, D.C. So why do we spend so much time fixated on the people in Washington, D.C.? Why? They're never going to solve the problem. And they're never going to be the solution. You're never going to elect a solution. Never. It's never, ever going to happen. But that's all we talk about. That's all we fixate on. That's all we... It's never going to be the solution. Now, I'm not saying that we just ignore everything that's going on. But understand. Like, see the bigger picture. Realize... What's the solution? And therefore, how can the solution come? And everywhere in the Bible, every verse that deals with this situation and the solution, it always comes through the ministry of the Word and the ministry of prayer and through the people of God every single time, always and only. And so, and yet, we as a culture are so obsessed. What if we took all the energy that we focus on politicians and we focus it on the actual solution? Only something sent from heaven itself will overcome the darkness around us so Christ can be seen as the world's only hope. You see, the thing is, the question's not, is Christ the world's only hope? We know the answer to that. The problem's not, we don't know the answer. The problem's that the world doesn't know the answer. So then the question is, how can the world see the answer clearly? It's the only way. You cannot read the Bible and not come to this conclusion, right? Right? Jesus didn't say, let my light shine. He didn't say that. He said, you are the light of the world. The light said, you're the light. I mean, it's so clear. It is so clear. And prayer is a huge part of this. Like, don't you think that, that if... What if, what if I stood up on Sunday morning and I said, stand to your feet if you believe that if, if every Christian went to their prayer closet, 
with urgency and fervency and sought the face of God. Stand to your feet if you believe that that would change things. And don't you know the whole place would stand to their feet? Isn't that true? Of course it is. Even people who don't even really believe that would stand to their feet. That's what would happen. And in every church around, that's what would happen. Yet, so what does that tell you? That's not what we really believe. Because if we really believed it, we would do it. Right? Of course. You see? We don't believe that. If I stand up on Sunday morning in what I think is, you know, one of the greatest churches in the world. If I stand up on Sunday morning and I announce that tonight at 5 o'clock, you know, we're going to have, you know, church-wide fellowship and so we got a big, you know, barbecue setup coming. We're all going to, you know, have a bunch of barbecue. Or we're going to have a big something. Or there's going to be a bunch of food trucks and everything's paid. Y'all just come. We're going to have a great time. It's going to be a bunch of folks come. If I stand up and say, tonight at 5 o'clock, we're going to have a solemn assembly and we're going to get on our face before God and we're going to seek the face of God, how many people are coming? And What's the difference? And that's here. So what's happening somewhere where the Word's not even faithfully being preached, where people are... where the pastor just picks a topic every week? Yikes. Because let me give you a little forewarning. Wherever that is, in 10 million years, they're not going to ever preach on the text I have for this Sunday morning because if I ever wanted to just... If I'm not here Sunday morning, it's because I don't want to preach this text. <laughs> like, I, you know, I did stick Matt with a good one a couple weeks ago, but I probably should have preached that one and stuck him with this one. All right, so what about the bless and be with rut? This is the rut we get in. So my question is... If we took bless and be with out of your prayer vocabulary, would you have anything to pray about? Would your, what, what would your prayer sound like without those two things? Now, let's be clear that the Bible's clear that we need to ask God for things and we need to share our burdens with each other. That's clear. But the rut occurs when we allow requests to serve as the foundation of our praying, focusing on our problems rather than on engaging with God. See, when if we if we have a solemn assembly, why are we having a solemn assembly? Are we having a solemn assembly because Like, we could be motivated to have a solemn assembly because we believe that our culture is in a state of disaster and calamity and that we believe that God is the solution. That's fine. But our motivation, you know, is because everything's a mess and we're doing this because we believe that God's a solution. That's good. But if we're having a solemn assembly, 
to bring our petitions before God, then we're just back to you're just bringing God flowers because it's Valentine's Day. Not because you love Him. It's because you're supposed to. Because you want something. You want Him to fix something. I'm not saying it's bad to want God to fix things. I'm saying it's bad to only want God because He fixes things. That's bad. People that I love and people that I really feel like love me, I love doing things for them. But if they only come to me when they want me to do something for them, that's a problem, right? Yeah, it's a problem. It's a relational problem. So that's what happens when we get in this rut. So what's the solution? The solution is what the Bible teaches about prayer. Which is why if you are going to let the, the Word of God shape the way that you pray, then what would mostly shape the way that you pray would not be... You see, Jesus taught us a lot about prayer. But if you're letting the Word of God, those words, if you were hearing those words and they were teaching how to pray, it wouldn't be anything in the New Testament. Because we, we have John 17, and then we have the Lord's Prayer. But in the Bible, we have tons of prayer. And where is it? In the Psalms. And let me tell you, if you go back and you listen to that series on the life of David, and you listen to those uh, sermons in there about David and his worship, it'd be super instructive for you in this arena. The Bible teaches worship-based prayer. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the Psalms are. That's what Jesus is doing in John 17. That's what He's doing in the Lord's Prayer. But that's what the Bible would teach you. So, worship is the response of all we are to the revelation of all God is. That's what worship is. The word worship just means worth-ship. It's worthiness. It's, it, when you worship God, you are declaring His worthiness. So if we were going to pray through worship, if worship was going to be our foundation of prayer, then we would pray in a way that prayer seeks the face of God before the hand of God. Wouldn't it? We want the hand of God, but we want the face of God more than the hand of God. And that's a big deal, that understanding of the difference between the face of God and the hand of God. See, the face, God's face, is the essence of who He is. His hand is the blessings of what He does. And think about it. Think about how God has unlimited capacity to unleash blessings upon His people, on, any, do, on anybody, at any time, in any way. It's, he doesn't have a limited capacity of blessing. So it's unlimited. So it's not like when God's blessing you, you're not using up you know, a quota. It's unlimited, right? But you really got to think this through. So 
His blessing is just infinite. But his face is his face. See, the, 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 the face of God, the presence of God, the countenance of God, the essence of God, this idea that we, we draw close to Him and, and, and see Him, look, you know, know Him. That's just Him. So to prioritize the blessing of God over the face of God is a, is a horrible mistake. His face represents His person and His presence. His hand expresses His provision for needs in our lives. But think about this from God's perspective. Like, sure, God delights to, to give us the desires of our heart. But do you think that this compares to that from God's perspective? I mean, it's not even close. It's not even in the same universe. I mean, it's just not. It's just not. When we, when we seek His person and His presence, like that, that is, that's the heart of God. In the same way, that's, and we're made in His image, and so we understand that because that's how we are. You're that way. I'm that way because we're made in His image. So we should know this. But we, how do we get in this rut? Because we get in it, boy. So prayer, see we talked about what it is, but we really didn't define it. We could define it as intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of His purposes. Notice it doesn't say, so then let's go back to my question I posed in the beginning about do you feel effective in your prayer? Well, if this should be the grid that you answer that question by, this is how you gauge the effectiveness of your prayer. By your intimacy with God and the fulfillment of His purposes, not your purposes, His purposes. So in order to gauge the effectiveness of your prayer based on this Definition, what does that mean? Well, first of all, this means that you can never gauge the effectiveness of your prayers by one specific prayer. It has to be over time because you can't gauge this in one singular moment. Because at any one singular moment, do you even know the purposes of God? What you have to do is look back over the past time in your life and go, how has God changed me? How has He molded me? How has sanctification taken place in my life? Those are the purposes of God. And then you can see that, which is what's so super wonderful about pouring yourself into your D group and your HEAR journal because it gives you, you know, you can go back and look at those past years of what God did in your life. You have this record. See? You have this record of God's purposes in your life and how you've changed and how he's, what He's done. If all we ever do is seek His hand, we'll miss His face. But if we seek His face, 
He will be glad to open His hand and satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts. It's a, it's what you're going to see in the coming weeks is the biblical model of prayer. This is the way we should condition ourselves to pray. Worship-based prayer ignites a desire for spiritual intimacy and personal transformation. So let me just pause for just a second and give you something to think about. So like, let's suppose that there was some natural disaster that happened today, or maybe it, maybe it did. I don't know. It's not like I've seen anything. I've been in a cave all day. But, like, you know, there's a giant forest fire raging out of control and somewhere, or there's an earthquake or this or that. And so then, if we were doing this traditional model where in the beginning of time I said, okay, raise your hand if you have a prayer request, and then somebody's going to raise their hand, they're just going to say, you know, Pray for the people in California at the forest fire. Pray for the earthquake in Eastern Europe or whatever, right? And so here's my question. What are we praying for? I mean, like I'm honestly asking the question because if I would have done that tonight, you, somebody in here, well, and then everybody would have their pen and pray for the forest fire. So let's ask a question. What are you praying for? I mean, I'm just assuming. I mean, I know a lot of you aren't even going to pray about it. But if you let's just suppose that you are actually going to pray about what you wrote down. What are you praying for? And you know what I think? Here's what we think. We're praying that the forest fire would stop. Aren't we? Is that really what we should pray for? We're praying for the people who are suffering from the earthquake. But is that... I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for the forest fire to stop. And I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for the people that are suffering because of the earthquake. I'm asking you a question. Is that the priority that we should pray for in those two situations? Is that the top? Is that the essence of what... Is that what God would want His people to seek His face on behalf of? Does God know people are suffering because of the earthquake? Is there anyone suffering or in the path of the forest fire that God's not aware of? Is He momentarily lost control of the universe? Is He, is he sitting in heaven going, I'll stop it at any time, just waiting on y'all to ask me. Like, is that a good God? I will, just... I need... I need this quota, and there's like a little, you know, the thermometer, and it's going ding, 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 ding in heaven as more people ask until it hits the mark. Okay, I'll stop it. Is that how that's going? That's how we pray. That's what we think. How dumb is that? That's the dumbest thing. Where did we learn that? Because we heard other people do that. So we just do it. Like robots. We never ask the question. We never stop. We never go, hmm. We just do it. But what, what is the heart of God 
for the people who are suffering from a natural disaster. That they wouldn't suffer? Is that his heart? Because if that's his heart, it would stop. What's his heart? He wants them to know him. And suffering is one of the most effective ways for people to know Him. Very few, if any of you in this room, came to know God because everything was going right in your life. And you know what? Let's just turn around and make it personal. Thank God that when my marriage was over and my life was falling apart, that there wasn't a bunch of, a bunch of robot, robotic goofballs praying, please God, fix Tony's marriage. Please God, fix Tony's marriage. Thank God. Because if my marriage would have gotten fixed, we wouldn't be having this conversation tonight right now. Thank God my marriage was about to be over. That's what got my attention. So do you think I'm going to pray that God's going to stop the suffering? No! I'm not praying that. I just scratch my head when I hear it and go, move on. It's weird. Why aren't we praying that they'll know Him? In other words, we're so consumed with this life when all of eternity is hanging in the balance and all we can do is pray about some temporal thing. Like, is it a big deal that your house burned down? Yes. But it's a way bigger deal that your life is going to burn for all eternity. Let me tell you something. When you're in hell, that house that burned is going to mean nothing. That ain't going to mean nothing. I don't want anybody's house to burn, but I really don't want anyone to burn for eternity. You see what I'm saying? This is a, a we need to have this conversation. What are we doing? What are we doing? We treat God like Santa Claus. And every single time we pray, we're making a list and checking it twice. I mean, it's all we're doing. And if we're nice, He's going to answer our prayers. And if we're naughty, He's not. We worship Santa. Worship-based prayer is not, it's not a new method of prayer. It's what the Bible teaches. It's the, the only method of prayer. It's God's method of prayer. It's the way we would pray if we had never, if we got saved and the minute we got, like we'd never been to church, we never knew anything, somebody came to our house, led us to faith in Christ, gave us a Bible, and we instantly got dropped off on a deserted island. That's how we would learn to pray. Worship-based prayer. We never heard anybody pray. We just had a Bible. That's how we would learn to pray. That's exactly what would happen. If the Psalms taught you how to pray, that's how you would pray. But somehow, in the weeks to come, you're going to feel like, 
Oh, they're teaching us a new method to pray. <coughs> Lord, we are not teaching you a new method to pray. We're just saying, think about it. It's not worship only prayer. See, some of you are going to be like, oh, I'm not going to ask for prayer about that, or I'm not writing that down on the card because it's going to be wrong. I know how you are. You're weird. That's weird. That's so weird. You're not going to write down what you would normally, because you're like, no, that's, is that worship-based? Hmm. Weird. Church people are weird. Amen. I mean, it's just weird. It's not worship only. We have needs. We're broken. We should bring those to God. That's important. We should, we should pray for people. Who are, in other words, if, if it was worship only, I wouldn't pray with people I mean, who are suffering and hurting. And Right? I mean, you, don't you understand that all of that is, is true and, and part of it? It's just not the essence of everything we do. It doesn't eliminate requests. We just need to make sure we get that out. I mean, if if you if your if your kids lived in the path of the fire, would you go? Well, no, that's not worship-based. So, I mean, I'm not going to pray the fire doesn't. Maybe you know, maybe the, maybe they need to be burned in the fire. Like, you see what I mean? Like, no, no. But that's not the only thing you care about. You see, and you you pray. You sh- we don't pray for Christians the way we pray for non-Christians. And we don't pray for non-Christians the way we pray pray for Christians. They're not the same. They're completely... That's two totally different worlds. So you can't just jumble it all together. Um, And it's not complicated. So hopefully we can explain it in a way that will make sense to everybody. You see down at the bottom on Psalm 27.8, When you said, capital Y, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. See, that's worship-based prayer. Psalm 27. There's a good example. So as we go through this, there'll be an opportunity, opportunities for us to interact with the Word of God and then to think about things and then to, to be able to put these things into practice and go, you know, how do we do this? You know, how should we... It's not a... There's not a right way and a wrong way. It's just, do we... Are we, are we understanding that we should be seeking the face of God, not the hand of God? Because the face of God is where the essence of God and the glory of God lie, and that's what, what's what we need in prayer. That's what we need. Remember, 
Prayer is dependence on God, right? And so for me to be dependent on something, I have I'm I I'm not sufficient. I'm deficient. So the only way I'm going to become the only way I'm going to overwhelm my insufficiencies is by scooting up next to sufficiency. Not by telling him what would fix my problems. He doesn't need any direction. 